Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Smile, you could soon be on a photo radar camera. Hamilton's mayor gives us an update on the city's budget talks. Will Ontario's housing plan really work? We speak with a Hamilton mother of two sons with autism. Winterfest will provide fun for everyone. And the NFL Super Wildcard Weekend was indeed super. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. If you're driving around town, you might want to keep an eye out not only on the speed limit, but automated speed enforcement cameras, because more of them are going to be landing on some busy streets. And here to talk about it is Mike Field. He's the Director of Transportation Operations and Maintenance with the City of Hamilton. Mike, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing well, thank you. So what's happening with these uh, ASE cameras? We're installing a couple cameras on Main Street and King Street uh, at some point this week, a little bit later this week. It's going to be two cameras running, one on Main Street East in between Gage Avenue and King Street near Gage Park, and then uh, one on King Street West in between Locke and Dunder, and that's near uh, Victoria Park. It's also the focus of our poll question of the day today. We're asking our listeners whether this type of traffic calming is uh, agreeable to them or not. Uh, Have these cameras, because I know this is not the first that Hamilton has employed, have these cameras proven to slow down traffic? Absolutely. We've been uh, issuing tickets or using uh, ASC for uh, quite some time now. The first uh, uh, act I guess uh, enablement of of the technology was on October 1st of 2020. We ran about, um, I think, 36 locations across the city and um, we've studied them. We do some some speed data collection before the cameras are there, when the cameras are there, and then after the cameras have left. And they show that they're really effective at um, lowering the operating speeds of vehicles when they're there, but also they have kind of a halo or residual effect after the cameras are gone. Um, it seems to uh, change driver behavior in those areas where they were because that those uh, lower speed limits persist for when even when after the cameras have left. Where do the cameras go once they leave a location, or do they just get moved from one street to another, or one location to another? Yeah, we use two cameras in the city, and then they rotate around the city at. Uh, at at locations that are approved by council. Um, so that's kind of how the process that we use is that we bring forward the proposed locations, the council, they approve them, and then we uh, we schedule them accordingly through the year, and they kind of move from spot to spot. So these are going to be on King and Main between January and June. Is there already a predetermined date and, and where they're going to go next, or is that up to council as well? There's four locations that were approved on uh, Main and King Street. The first two that I mentioned uh, are going to be used first near uh, Gage Park on Main Street and Victoria Park near on King Street, sorry. And then the other two locations uh, are Main Street and King Street. Um, Main Street being Dundurn and Queen down near the 403 and King Street uh, Gage to uh, to Lot Ridge. So those are locations that were already previously approved by council. And uh, those locations were selected based on a number of factors, including um, you know some speed studies that we did where we observe higher vehicle speeds and then also so um, obviously having them close to Gage Park and, Gorp- and uh, Victoria Park, where there's a lot of people that are, um, you know, walking and cycling and that sort of thing. So it uh, helps out and helps prote- protect those types of uh, road users. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Mike Field, Director of Transportation Operations and Maintenance with the City of Hamilton. We're talking about automated speed enforcement cameras or, or photo radar cameras, for lack of a better term. Uh, they're going to be appearing on King and Main Streets in uh, the coming 
days. Uh, when it comes to uh, revenue generation, we had uh, one person text in saying, hey, this is just another tax grab. What kind of revenue do these cameras generate for the city? That's an often uh, heard comment that um, that is kind of talked about uh, with these cameras. They actually don't uh, produce any revenue. They cost more to operate than they do uh, as far as the money that they take in through uh, through tickets. That's unlike red light cameras. Those are revenue positive for the city. They do make money, but the uh, automated speed in, uh, enforcement cameras actually cost more money to operate than what they bring in in revenue. And is that because that money, whatever the ticket is, goes to the provincial offense department? Partly that. Um, the red light camera tickets are fixed, so if you know if you run a red light, that's a fixed cost uh, to you as a as a driver. But with uh, speeding, obviously, the the cost of the ticket is dependent on how far above the speed limit you uh, you are driving. So there's not as much consistency as far as the the um, the infraction and the money from the infractions that we're receiving. But there are quite a few costs from. Uh, processing the tickets and um, putting them through the court system as well. And those are kind of administrative costs that uh, generally exceed the the revenue that's received from the infractions themselves. Are there any more traffic calming measures that are going to be added to our local streets in the weeks or months ahead? For the most part, the uh, immediate safety measures that uh, council uh, asked for on Main and King have been completed. There's all kinds of uh, traffic calming uh, work going on in the city um, across the entire city every year. Um, there's a bunch of uh, ward-specific uh, complete street studies that were completed that um, we'll, we'll see a, a number of different traffic calming features uh, appearing at a number of neighborhoods across the city. And those can be anywhere from simple pavement markings and signage to speed cushions uh, to uh, reconstruction eventually for some roadways. Mike, thanks for the time and uh, thanks for sharing the insight on these uh, ASC cameras. Thanks so much. And if uh, anyone would like more information, we have uh, a a plethora of information about our Vision Zero program on the city's website. And that's hamilton.ca slash vision zero. Excellent. Mike, thanks a lot. Thank you. That is Mike Field, Director of Transportation Operations and Maintenance with the City of Hamilton. Again, starting this week, these ASE cameras, these photo radar cameras will be installed along Main Street in the area of Gage Park. The other on King West from Lock to Dundurn. Don't say I didn't warn you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Budget deliberations continuing at Hamilton City Hall. There's some heavy lifting, a lot of things to contemplate and debate. Joining us to discuss it is the mayor of Hamilton, Andrea Horvath. Andrea, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. Good morning. I, I did, and this has, an Im- this has an impact on the budget for sure, but I did want to clarify one part of Ontario's housing plan. Last hour, we had Flamborough, Glanbrook, PC, MPP, Donna Skellion, who said in, in regards to development charges, they're only being waived or lessened only for not-for-profit subsidized housing. Is that news to you? And either way, are you still worried about lost revenue regarding development charges? Uh, so first of all, yes, I am still concerned about that. And in fact, our staff pre- uh, prepared a, a very detailed report that uh, outlines um, some of their concerns. And I think council all agree that it's a problem. But uh, I think what, um, what MPP Scully might have um, not mentioned is that uh, there's vague reference to uh, quote-unquote affordable housing as well as not-for-profit housing. Uh, but but then there's no description of what that means. Um, so th- there's there's some 
uh, vagueness around what might be coming in the regulations uh, that uh, that outline other kinds of what the government might consider to be affordable housing, but may not, in fact, be affordable housing. And so there's, you know, it's, there's not a lot of clarity, uh, and so that means there's risk. And so financially, it's going to be a problem for the city and for for all cities. I mean, there's no there's no way that all of the mayors of the big cities in this uh, province and, and in other cities as well are so concerned for not. I mean, there's a reason we're concerned, and and it's uh, there's also the principle that those development charges need to pay uh, for the services that um, that that are necessary to have healthy communities. So there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of, to unpack. Let's put it that way, and it, it's not as simple as. Uh, as uh, has been articulated. So when you look at the City of Hamilton budget line item for lost development charges revenue, for lack of a better term, what what, what is that number? Well, this is exactly uh, what we, we what we don't know. I mean, we there are some estimates, but we won't know how to peg that number until we get the, uh, the regulations from the government that outline the details. And so it's in the order of millions and millions of dollars. Uh, that's what our staff is saying, and, and that's what they're concerned about. Who who picks up that cost? Well, the taxpayer of, of today, the property taxpayer of today pick, picks up that cost. The development should pay for itself. Not It shouldn't be put on the backs of, uh, of residents. Uh, Hamilton Police Chief uh, Frank Bergen recently presented uh, the police budget to the city of Hamilton. Is there any sense that is going to be rejected or, or any pushback from city council? Uh, there were several questions uh, that uh, councillors had uh, when it came to the police budget. And in fact, I think Chief Bergen was on his feet for something like two and a half hours uh, as he went through the presentation and, and took the questions uh, from councillors. I, I can't, uh, I can't predict what council may or may not do with the police uh, budget. I think a lot of councillors raised, you know, concerns, but also identified and acknowledged that their constituents, their residents, as they went out campaigning, uh, we're, we're very clear about the necessity for things like uh, ensuring that neighbourhood crime is dealt with, uh, auto theft, uh, traffic concerns, safety on the roads, um, you know, guns and, and, and violence. I mean, there's, it's a complex issue and simply saying we're not, we're going to reject the budget and, and not, uh, you know, not provide the, the, the finances necessary to operate the police service is is naive. I mean, there there are they do important work, and uh, and we need do we need to provide funding for services that keep people out of the criminal justice system? Things like mental health, absolutely. Things like addiction treatment, for sure. More affordable housing so that people uh, aren't uh, destitute and desperate, absolutely. But those solutions have to come as well. But you can't pretend that policing is not necessary in a city like Hamilton. We've, we've, seen, we've seen the policing needs, and, and we need to su- support a, a budget that provides those, uh, uh, those services. We have one more minute with Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath in regards to the budget. There, there's bound to be a tax increase this year. I think that's unavoidable. Is there a target percentage that you're looking at? Well, the uh, initial operating budget that was brought before Council, I believe, sits now at 58 I could have that wrong. It might be 5.6, but I think it's 5.8. Uh, and so we're going to try to wrestle that lower. Absolutely. Uh, I think, I think we are going to have an increase this year. Uh, it's just all of the pressures that, uh, that everyone is facing is, are also being faced by the city. And so uh, there's no doubt that there is going to be an increase. Having said that, 
we also know that people are struggling. Everything's expensive. It's it's tough to make ends meet uh, with the economy the way it is, with the interest rates the way they are, and prices and costs of everything going through the roof. And we're thoughtful about that and cognizant of that. So, so we're going to m- try to make sure that we're balancing those realities with the needs of providing the very services that support families to, to uh, live a, a good life here in Hamilton. Mayor Horvath, thank you for your time today. Good luck with these budget deliberations. My pleasure. That is Andrea Horvath, Mayor of the City of Hamilton, joining us here on GMH. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a lot of for and against in regards to Ontario's housing plan and a really great uh, op-ed written in the Hamilton Spectator by Flamborough Glambrook PC MPP Donna Skelly. The headline, NIMBYs Won't Stop Our Housing Plans. And we welcome Ms. Kelly to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Donna, good morning. How are you? Good morning. And I just want to address that headline. That is a headline written by the Hamilton Spectator. And, and uh, I mean, let's be honest. My, my intent of this, of this op-ed was to really address some of the misinformation that is circulating regarding our plan to get homes uh, built in Ontario. But... One of the things, and, and, and maybe I won't, well, I'll let you ask the question. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm what, all rolled up here right now. What, what misconceptions are you pointing to? Let's talk about development charges, which I think most people don't understand what a DC, when we say DC, it refers to development charge is. So when a, um, a developer is building a new home, the municipality applies a development charge per unit. And at this point, for a single detached or resident uh, townhouse condo in the city of Hamilton, that development charge per unit is between $110,000 and $120,000. So think about it. When I bought my first home, I paid that for the first home. Now that is the fee. Before you even have your down payment, that is applied to the cost of that home. So that is making, that is one of the many reasons homes have become so unaffordable. So what we are doing is recognizing that there are many homes that we have to build in Ontario to address a massive, a very serious crisis. Not only can young people not afford to get into the housing market, but people who need to rent can't find affordable renting. So there's all types of housing, the missing middle, which is that rental market. Sometimes it's subsidized housing. And then there is the um, the, the type of home that people who really have the right to have in Ontario. When you live in Ontario, you should be able to live where you want in the type of home you choose to live in. So let me let me just jump on the let me just jump on the development charge aspect of mm-hmm. it. So if you were to waive, let's just say for sake of argument, a hundred thousand dollar development charge on a particular unit, the average mm-hmm. price of a home in Hamilton, let's just say again for sake of argument, eight hundred thousand dollars. Would these mm-hmm. new homes that are being built be then listed at seven hundred thousand dollars? Is that basically what we're going to see? No, because the development charge waive does not apply to any of those new builds. It's only applied to that other section of the crisis in our housing, uh, uh, segment in our housing crisis. So we need to build homes for our most vulnerable. We need subsidized housing units for people who are right off the street that need those wraparound services, units that are around five to $600 a month. Indwell is a prime example. So when they build these homes for people who are desperate, who need some sort of subsidized housing, 
that is where the DC is waived. The oh. development charge is waived. So when we look at not the, for a new build. So when we look at the green belt lands, let's just take this example. Mm-hmm. And some in Hamilton are going to be opened up here. Will part of those lands be targeted or uh, earmarked for affordable housing subdivisions or or units? If the developer chooses so, but we aren't telling them where to build. We're simply saying that that development charge is only waived so that when an organization, a not-for-profit, goes to build a unit to house, say, 40 or 50 people, they're not stuck with two, $3 million in development charges, which makes it completely unattainable. What we're talking about is waiving it on not-for-profits, giving a 25% reduction on the D.C. to people who are building rental units. We haven't seen any rental units built since the 70s. They're simply not attractive to developers. So we're saying we'll give you an incentive reduce your development charge by 25% and build those units for people to rent. And we will make municipalities whole. Uh, You'll hear some of the councillors erroneously say, we need those DCs, they're waiving the DCs on um, townhouses and single detached homes. That's absolutely untrue. So they're getting the home, they're getting the DC, which covers the entire cost of the water, wastewater, roads, streetlights, et cetera, and an annual income in a municipal tax that goes back into the coffers of the municipality to cover the cost of everything else. We've got a couple more minutes with Donna Skelly, PCMPP, Flamborough Glambrook here listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Regarding the urban boundary debate, and it's been a heated one, as you know, uh, I've been the proponent of let's build within before we build out. Is there not enough land in Hamilton? No. No. There isn't. There is not enough land. That is information that came from the city's own planners. If we try, look what has happened with our waterways. We just saw another leak that has been ongoing for years, pouring sewage, raw sewage into Lake Ontario. We can't possibly accommodate, you know, 260,000 more people in the downtown core. It's just not going to happen. Not only that, Rick, do you really want to see these charming neighborhoods, the Duran neighborhood, the Lock Street area, with with a uh, six, seven, eight, twelve, twenty-three story apartment unit, to you know, per block. I don't think people want to see that kind of massive change in their communities. And not everybody wants to live in a four or five hundred square foot condo. But those plans so are already in place. Like you look at the old CHCH building, kind of a neighborhood, yeah. you know, small neighborhood. There's exactly. you know, skyscrapers are going encur- up there. We're encouraging that, but we can't. That's just for the existing. Projected growth, uh, the growth. That's not, that's not going to accommodate the projected growth. It would destroy not only that, the septic system, the sewer system, the wastewater system won't sustain that type of growth. Not, people need to be able to understand that this is a smart way of handling the projected growth. And we need these people. If we don't have more people coming to Hamilton to take care of, uh, you know, the fill the PSW positions, the nursing positions, the, jobs in our restaurants, they'll go elsewhere where they can't afford a home. They'll go to St. Catharines, they'll go to Sudbury, they'll go to North Bay where they can afford a home and buy a home that isn't in a tower. But all of that, we, we are encouraging intensification along transit lines where we can do it. But it does. the city of Hamilton's current urban boundary will not accommodate the projected growth. It's great, stop. it's great to have a spirited debate on a hot topic, <laughs> that is for sure. Donna, appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. 
Anytime. That is Donna Skelly, PC MPP Flamborough Glambrook. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, we know that uh, the healthcare system here in this province is, well, battered and bruised. And there are a number of impacts in regards to that, whether it's long term care, the hospital system, trying to book a procedure, even get one. It is, uh, it's a challenge. It is a challenge. And the same can be said for parents with children with autism. And uh, to that end, there are a couple of Hamilton NDP MPPs that are urging, encouraging, demanding from this provincial government to pick up the pace here, demanding support for families with uh, children with autism, because it is going in the wrong direction. It is trending downwards. A couple of guests to discuss this. Sandy Shaw is the NDP MPP for Hamilton West and Castor Dundas, and a Hamilton woman by the name of Danielle, who has two children with autism. Danielle, Sandy, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Feeling good. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having us. Danielle, we'll start with you. You're a Hamilton mom of two, and you have two sons. One's 18, one is two, and they have very different stories to tell when it comes to autistic care, if I can put it that way. Yes, that's right. So my eldest son, um, he's 18. He was diagnosed over 10 years ago. um, And we found we were able to get specialized autism services within that first year um, of being diagnosed. Um, He's now looking at graduating high school. He has a part-time job and he's looking at going to the trades full-time post-secondary. We just had our son diagnosed. He's two and we're looking at years before we receive those same specialized services. So that has to be uh, disappointing. It's probably an understatement. Uh, it definitely is. It definitely is. Yeah. Um, Sandy, you're urging the province and the, and the provincial government to do something about this. Absolutely. And I, you know, I just want to commend Danielle and all the other families that have been st- advocating in, 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 with this government. It's very courageous for her to come on and tell her story because it really um, is a difficult story to share. And, you know, I, I think perhaps, uh, you know, Danielle may feel you know, alone or lonely with this, but she's not alone. There's so many families in Ontario that are in the same situation. Something like 60,000 plus families have been languishing on a waiting list that is ballooning under Doug Ford's government. And just like Danielle said, why this is so important is because therapy works. And if kids get therapy early, they have these wonderful outcomes like as Danielle described for her son. So, you know, we need answers from this government um, they they really are refusing now to talk about how many kids are on the wait, waiting list. They're refusing to disclose how much money they actually spent in this file. We need answers. Uh, just leaving the families uh, waiting, you know, in the dark is not is is just really deeply shameful from a government that we know has uh, is sitting on millions and billions of unspent dollars in our social services uh, across Ontario and in Hamilton. Danielle, it must be disheartening to see one of your sons thriving after getting the care that, you know, they deserve, but your other son is not being treated the same. It, it seems like an unlevel playing field. It definitely is. Um, we've actually had to go about and purchase these specialized services for our son. So we're now spending $1,600 a month out of pocket and we're just getting the baseline service. They've actually recommended that we do 15 hours a week to see the most greatest difference. Um, but it would cost us uh, $3,900 a month before taxes. And, you know, we want to do that, of course, because we've seen our eldest son just 
do so amazing. Um, but unfortunately, we can't afford that. So what's the impact with your son? How is he doing? My youngest or my eldest? Sorry. Your, your youngest, sorry. <laughs> um, so my youngest, um, you know, we we can't go to the park because the meltdowns are sometimes so bad because we have to physically remove him. He's not able to attend city run toddler programming because he can't follow simple instructions or be with other children socially right now. And we might not be able to attend daycare because they aren't able to support um, my child who has autism with these additional needs. We're talking with uh, Sandy Shaw, NDP MPP from Hamilton West, uh, Ancaster Dundas, and Danielle, a Hamilton mom of two sons, both with autism, but uh, each with a very different story to tell. One's 18 and received a significant, uh, significantly more care than her two-year-old son uh, under the Ontario Autism Program. Sandy, what's the holdup? Is, th- is this all come down to funding? I believe so. But as I said earlier, the, you know, the government is refusing to disclose or be at all transparent on uh, how many people are waiting, how many people are receiving uh, services at this point and how much money they have spent. But we know this is a government that's cut the autism file in half at one point. And really what it, what it comes down to is not only funding, but actually uh, a priority. We, we know what Doug Ford seems to care about, which is, you know, building highways uh, that will enrich his buddies. But by his lack of action when it comes to young children, they're showing that this is not a priority. They don't care about this file and it's really deeply, deeply shameful. And so with a government that has a surplus who sits on billions of dollars, our biggest priority, our highest priority should be the health and well-being of, of our young kids. And as we've seen here, uh, the, the, these these services make a difference. They they are successful, and families shouldn't have to be facing financial ruin uh, just to get what their kids deserve and what we as a community and as a society should want for them as well. It's up to our government to care for our people, to care for us, and to provide for us in a time like this. And really, it's just so um, it's so distressing and disappointing that this government just continues continues to turn their backs on these families. Danielle, Sandy, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining us and best of luck going forward with us. Thank Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Rick. And thanks, Danielle. That is uh, Danielle, a Hamilton mother of two, both with autism, 118, one, two years of age, and very different scenarios involving uh, their treatment and, and care with autism. And uh, Sandy Shaw is the NDP MPP for Hamilton West and Caster Dundas. Um, you know what? Uh, a little money or a lot of money will go a long way in this regard. That is for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Winterfest is fast approaching. Yeah. February 2nd, it launches all the way to Family Day on February the 20th. So what is in store this year? What's new and this year's festivities? Jeremy Freiberger is the founder and cultural strategist with Cobalt Connects and puts on Winterfest and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jeremy, good morning. How are you? Good morning, sir. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Winterfest, is this the first time post-pandemic it's back or has it uh, endured some of the pandemic uh, uh, months from years gone by? Yeah, no, we uh, we hobbled our way through uh, through the <laughs> pandemic. Uh, last year, we were up at Akmar in person, uh, but I, I would say that this is really our first like full on year back. Yeah. So how does it feel? Really good. <laughs> it's funny. It's like it's very stressful right now. We've got a lot on the go to pull off what we're doing, but it's the kind of stress I love. I love I love um, helping make artists' visions come to life and uh, planning events. And we've got a really great team working with us this year. So it's exciting. If uh, someone never heard about Winterfest, how would you describe it? Uh, Sure. So, I mean, Winterfest has been going on since the mid-70s. 
uh, and it's co-produced with myself, with Cobalt Connects, and with the city of Hamilton. And uh, we've only been doing it for the last five years. But Winterfest is a really cool festival. It's this combination of about 60 or 70 events across the city from Dundas to Stony Creek up the mountain uh, that are led by community groups. So think neighborhood associations, BIAs, small arts organizations doing all sorts of stuff, 90% of which is totally free. And then we layer on top of that a layer of professional arts programming along with people like the HPO and the AGH and Center 3 um, to put on um, really high caliber arts events. Everything from the HPO playing the Beatles at First Ontario Center to the Winterfest Hub on the roof of Jackson Square. Um, so it's this really cool combination of like professional arts programming and a whole sea of community programming that's all really fantastic. It is a massive collaboration. You just, uh, you know, you've rattled off a few venues there. This is a citywide thing. Uh, is is it difficult to put this on? It's, it's a different one compared to, I mean, I've been involved in festivals my whole career. And this is the only one where I've got this kind of duality of programming of helping to coordinate in a very small way all these community events. Our job is really to pull them into the mix and say, if you're doing something in February, we want to help promote it. Uh, we pull together all the grant funding and all that sort of stuff and help promote all those events. And then we spend a lot of our time focused on the Winterfest hub. So it is, it's, it's, uh, it's a delicate dance of wanting to pull together a pile of really amazing stuff and market it well. Um, that is different than just a festival where you're saying, this is the one site, everybody come here. We're saying, go anywhere, go all over the place and enjoy the winter. Jeremy Freiberger is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, founder and cultural strategist with Cobalt Connects as we talk about uh, Winterfest, which kicks off February 2nd all the way to the 20th. Is there uh, a highlight for you from Winterfest? There's so many amazing things from comedy shows to concerts to fashion week. What's the highlight for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd probably lose my job if I said there was one. <laughs> but, uh, but there are a lot. Like, we're really excited to get behind Hamilton Fashion Week this year. It's been going on for a number of years, and last year was a big hit, so we've invested some money in Fashion Week. Uh, and we're collaborating with a whole pile of people on the Winterfest Hub, which is the programming that we really manage. So we're taking over the roof of Jackson Square from February 10th to 20th. There are about 25 custom art installations from artists in Hamilton, across Canada, and from overseas, uh, free concerts on two nights, uh, a theater performance on one night. Our Valentine's Day event is basically already sold out. Um, so we've got a lot of really fun stuff going on. But personally, a piece that I'm really excited about is we've been working with an artist named Adam Montour from Six Nations for about five years to take animals and images out of his stunning paintings and to turn them into three-dimensional sculptural pieces. And so we'll have 10 of those on display during Winterfest. And it's just a piece that means a lot to me because we've been working together for so long to bring this to life with Adam. Wow. Where, where will they be installed and what do they look like? Yeah. So the so Adam's pieces are, um, he paints uh, woodland style. Um, so if you think of sort of uh, Norvell Morizot kind of style, um, really stylized animals. And so we've got um, bears that are chasing a salmon. We've got a family of otters. We've got a group of deer. Um, we've got a pair of herons. Uh, and there, if you think of like that traditional black line um, painting, if you think of those animals brought to life, sort of, you know, six to 10 feet tall, uh, and they've all got lights in them now. So they they glow different colors at different times of the night. 
Um, so they're really beautiful pieces. So all of these pieces, plus all these other artists that we've commissioned incredible works from, are going to be up on the roof of Jackson Square. So if you've either been up there in the past or have never been, the roof of Jackson Square is like a little city of its own. It's got little parks and trees and all these nooks and crannies. And we've got these sculptures all over the place. Um, so we've got light-up murals, physical sculptures, inflatable things. We've got a giant ice rink sponsored by the Hilton Oshawa Port Authority, so you can go skating on the roof. Um, we've got a giant disco ball that's going to be spinning all the time. We've got a really neat mix of stuff that's going to make that environment something that people have never experienced before. You also have a family day festival and a number of free events, and all the events are on the website, hamiltonwinterfest.ca. Let's talk about the free stuff because everyone likes free things. What are some things that people can get into? Yeah, I mean, there's everything. I mean, when you combine the the community events and the Winterfest Hub, there's free across the country, you know. So we've got everything from free pancake breakfasts with the North End Neighborhood Association, uh, Gorley Park, which is one of the longest running uh, Winterfest events, has their Winterfest event up in the mountain, which is free. Everything at the Hamilton Winterfest Hub is free except your hot chocolate. Uh, so all the concerts and performances and seeing the exhibition is all free. Family Day is uh, a whole other ball of wax this year. We've partnered up with the Art Gallery of Hamilton and the Hamilton Public Library, all sponsored by the Insight Foundation to create a family day like no other. There are pajama parties and free cotton candy and mascots and storytelling all over the place. Uh, it's a you know a 10 hour or eight or 10 hour day just packed with music and all sorts of stuff for the whole family to do. Well, lots of fun to be had February 20th, uh, February 2nd to the 20th. You can check out all the details online, hamiltonwinterfest.ca. Jeremy, appreciate the time. Best of luck with this. Thanks so much, Rick. Have a great week. You too. That's Jeremy Freiberger, founder and cultural strategist with Cobalt Connects. There's so many amazing things to do at Winterfest, and it's all happening in this community. And the website is laid out as such where you can... You know, look at the calendar, schedule the events that you want to go to, check out more information that you want to see. It is a really great job, and it's all happening right here in Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, it was Super Wild Card Weekend in the National Football League. The first six games in the NFL playoffs, five of them have been played. There's one more on tonight. And they were super. They were top to bottom. This may have been one of the best playoff weekends in NFL history. That might be overstating it a little bit. But when you look at the scores, and if you would, if you watched any of the games, you were entertained basically from start to finish. There was one true blowout and one almost blowout. Actually, Two almost blowouts. The, the one blowout was the 49ers and the Seattle Seahawks. They fake the toss. They roll Purdy to the left. Purdy going to throw back middle. Wide open Debo Samuel. Down the sideline. 50, 40, Debo 30, Debo 20, Debo 10, Debo touchdown! San Francisco! And the 49ers waltzed to a 41-23 victory over Seattle. It was a close one at halftime, though. Seahawks actually had the lead 17-16, but San Francisco and rookie quarterback Brock Purdy, who, this is an amazing story, the last pick in last year's draft, or I guess this, yeah, last year's draft, um, 
is now the starting quarterback of San Francisco, which has a legitimate shot at winning the Super Bowl. That would be, you know, for, for everything that Tom Brady has done and being drafted 199th overall and going on to win seven Super Bowls, Brock Purdy being Mr. Irrelevant, being the last draft pick taken, and some way, somehow winning, I think they've won 11 in a row now, is on the cusp of making history as a rookie quarterback. It's pretty crazy. Speaking of crazy, this one was absolute nuts. Jacksonville, Florida, and the L.A. Chargers erupt for 27 consecutive points. They led this game 27 to nothing before Jacksonville scored a touchdown just before halftime. So 27-7 at the half. And some gazillionaire out there lays down money on the Chargers. Yeah, I mean, they're up 20 points. They are cruising. Jacksonville can't do barely anything right. So this guy, the name of, um, I'm intimating it's a guy. There's no way a woman would be dumb enough to do this. This was some dumb millionaire who put down $1.4 million on the Chargers to win. Why was he dumb? Well, the payout was $11,000. If L.A. had won on Saturday night, he would have won 11000 But he put up $1.4 million to win eleven grand. He ended up losing. Because the Jacksonville Jaguars made one of the greatest, in fact, the third biggest comeback in NFL playoff history and won the game 31-30. to Dropping, looking, fires through the right corner of the end zone, and that ball is caught for the touchdown! Christian Kirk for the score! Cook puts it down. Patterson's kick is up. The field goal is good! 24 points in the second half of the Jags. They win it 31-30 to on a last-second field goal, and Bedlam in Jacksonville. How about those Bills? Oh, they were rolling at the start, up 17 to nothing on the Dolphins. Allen back to pass, surveying the field, fires to the end zone to Davis! Did he get both feet down? Touchdown, Buffalo! A 23-yard missile launch by Allen to Davis! Bills needed that one. They were up 17-0. The Dolphins go ahead in the football game, rallying from that 17-point deficit to go up in the third. The Bills found a way to win it 34-31. That was an awesome game to watch. Still in the awesome category, Giants over the Vikes. Barkley muscling forward. Barkley, what an effort, and he is in. Touchdown, New York. Yeah, the G-Men were on point all game long in Minneapolis as they oust the Vikings and maybe one of the games of the weekend as well. Argument can be made for Cincinnati and the way they beat Baltimore. Reaches, oh, that ball's out, that's live! Back the other way, Sam Hubbard! The Cincinnati kid! Hubbard's got a convoy! Chased by Andrews! At the 30, the 20, he will score! Mike Tirico on ESPN, unbelievable, a 98-yard fumble return for a touchdown, and the game winner, unbelievable, as the Bengals move on to the next round. That second round of the NFL playoffs looks like this, KC hosting Jacksonville, Buffalo will entertain Cincinnati, the Giants are in Philadelphia to take on the top-seeded Eagles, and the winner of tonight's game, San, or, pardon me, Dallas and uh, Tampa Bay, will move on to play San Francisco in round number two. Should be just as exciting as this past weekend. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 
9.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.